Welcome to Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Guy of Guy's Woodshop, and tonight I'm joined by Hui Huin of the Alabama Woodworker. Say hello, Hui. Hello, Guy. <laughs> and Sean Walker of Simple Co. Say hello, Sean. Hello, Sean. <laughs> this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you guys some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. And uh, we also have a Patreon account. And right now we have one level and we are simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the costs of bringing you this awesome podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife. And I'd also like to say hello to a new patron we have this time, Glenn Neef Knife. Sorry, Glenn. Uh, and we sincerely hope that you give us your support. So stay tuned to the end of the show and you'll hear about what we've got going on in our shop. So Let's get right into it. We, you have the first question. All right. So this question is from Kevin at Quill Woodworks. And if you know Kevin, he's uh, got quite the sarcastic sense of humor. He's this pretty awesome guy. What was it? What was he before Quill Woodworks? It was um, Kevin and a number. I can't, honestly, I can't yeah. even remember, but, but I like Quill Woodworks. It's, it's a yeah, good one. He's, he's, he's good. So he says, hi, Sean, Hui, and Guy. As always, I love the show. Answering a bunch of questions while keeping it light and fun makes it for a perfect woodworking podcast. Though I disagree with the other listener who described Guy as beautiful. He's more ruggedly handsome like Dwayne The Rock Johnson or Christian Bexford. So here's to the question. That's a weird combination. I'm either <laughs> The Rock or I'm Christian Bexford. <laughs> I don't know. That's a That's a huge spread there. Yeah, it is. Question, what sort of warranty do you offer a client when you build a custom piece? What do you think are reasonable customer issues and where would you draw the line? Should custom furniture always be final sale? This can be a delicate subject, so I'd love to hear your different takes on it. Thanks, Kevin. Ooh, man, that is that can be a lot. I mean, you can do a whole entire show. I think actually you guys actually at... Uh, Against the Grain podcast did an entire show about yeah, uh, warranties and whatnot. So, so by the way, and shameless plug for Guy, he also does the uh, Against the Grain podcast. So he did talk about this subject. But I, I want to talk about this subject because I recently did a commission and I didn't include any type of warranty with the piece. In fact, actually, there was no real contract. This was probably the first commission piece that I had ever done. And, and, you know, maybe I'd made a mistake by not doing that, but I'm looking at it and I'm kind of thinking, what are some of the things that I would probably give a reasonable warranty for what I would consider a reasonable warranty on say a product that I would get from, from a store. Uh, so things against like manufacturers defects, right? So if I didn't use the proper type of joinery or if it wasn't uh, glued up properly and the joint from normal wear and tear, comes apart. But the hard part is how do you sort of decipher what is normal wear and tear versus absolute abuse? I don't know. I don't know really the answer to this. And I want to talk about it. And I want to kind of get y'all's take on it and, and see what you guys think in terms of what is a reasonable customer issue that you'd be willing to warrant. Mm, probably finish failure, something to do with the finishing, unless there's signs of abuse. I don't have much to add to it. Uh, I don't I don't sell my furniture. I give it to family. So it's unfortunately it comes with a lifetime warranty <laughs> damage included. So, um, I would think, you know, if there's some sort of, uh, finishing mishap where I don't know the, it bubbles, it peels, uh, you know, the stain, I, I don't know. I'm going to defer to guy on this one. <laughs> 
All right. So it all, it all lands on my shoulders. Well, um, it, it is a really good question, Kevin. And the answer is just as difficult as Sean and we have pointed out. Typically, guys like myself and Sean and we and you, Kevin, we're not manufacturers. Right. We're individual craftsmen. And when you're a manufacturer, most of your 99% of your customers are faceless entities that are Mm -hmm. out there in the ether. So it's very easy to say, well, I'm giving a 90 day warranty or I'm giving a one year warranty or I'm giving a three year warranty against, of course, you know, defects and workmanship, not necessarily materials in our case, but workmanship. So that covers you in case, you know, somebody drops a frying pan on it. Well, that's not a problem with workmanship. Or yeah. somebody decides to, you know, boink on top of your table and it, it, the legs break off. The legs break off. <laughs> that's, not, that's not reasonable wear and tear because right. you know, while, while some tables are meant to be boinked on, not all of them are. <laughs> that's a PG podcast. That was great. Yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, I, I kept it family friendly. It, absolutely. That's PG-13. So anyways, um, most of our customers were trying to get repeat business from. Right. And I'd like to say that we treat all customers equally. We don't. You may have this one guy that you know is just trying to get you down in price and get the cheapest thing he can and you build it for him and you know he's never going to buy anything from you ever again. Mm, good point. However, you're going to get a guy that buys something for you, doesn't haggle on the price, works with you as a good customer. And you know this guy was not only going to give you referrals, but he's going to give you more business himself. Mm -hmm. So if that guy calls me up in two years and says, hey, I've got a problem with the finish. I set a glass on here and now I've got a ring on it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go fix it for him and I'm not going to charge him. However, the guy that the first guy I was talking about, that's, you know, it was very difficult and, and mm-hmm. got me down in price. And that week I needed the work and blah, 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 blah. Called him and said, you know, I, I put a thing on here and your finish sucks. And you should have. I was like, yeah, sorry, dude. Mm-hmm. It's not my fault you're stupid and put a wet glass on. You ever hear coasters? Right. I know that's, that's really a non answer, Kevin. But I would say give, your, give yourself at least you know, a year warrant. If you want to have like some kind of written down thing, Mm -hmm. give yourself a year warranty. I know some guys that give three years. I know some guys give 90 days. Myself, I would always give a year warranty on it against defects in craftsmanship, Mm -hmm. not materials, Mm -hmm. but craftsmanship. So what he's talking about, you know, if a joint fails or this fails or that fails, the customer's covered. But if they do something stupid, Right. It's on them. But depending on the customer, you can always say, hey, you know, and work with them a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're kind of in a different business. And I, I, I always think back to when I was in the swimming pool industry, we sold, obviously, we sold pool liners, right? Mm-hmm. These big plastic things that fit into a pool and you filled them with water. The warranty on them was great. They had a 10-year warranty on them. Wow. That was until you put water in it. i'm not kidding you the warranty was null and void the second you put water into it yeah 
Think about that for a second. Mm -hmm. So if you want to do something, you know, really shady or screwy, you can put in there, you know, your furniture is guaranteed for 10 years, as long as you never put anything on it or ever use it. It's furniture. I guess my point is it's furniture. It's going to get used. It's going to get damaged. And myself, I always treated it as each case was its own individual thing. It depended on the circumstance and it depended on the customer. How would you handle something like now with it being 2020 and you have places like Etsy and uh, how do you handle warranty work as far as shipping the piece back to you? As far as covering the shipping, do they cover the shipping? How would you recommend something like that? Well, I, I really don't ship any of my stuff. Yeah. But if, if I did, they'd be responsible for the shipping. I can't I can't be responsible for it. Yeah. And in my case, my pieces got shipped and that was rolled into the final cost of the piece. So I, I mean, I I think I'd have to be the same that they'd have to cover the shipping. Yeah. But I mean, are are they going to ship a table back to you? No, I can't. I can't imagine that. But these are family friends and my family lives in New York. So it's something I could go back and maybe redo a finish sand and, you know, do whatever and what ne- what needs to be done. You know, when I when I go back upstate to upstate New York, but that would have to be something that they would have to wait on, obviously. Um, yeah. So that's that's a, good that's a hard one, man. That's that's, that's a, a hard question. one. But the way you stated it, though, guy, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's all about it's a different business, right? We're not in a manufacturing facility. Ten percent of our products not going through QC. You know, there isn't there isn't this oversight to what it is that we do. So like you said, it is a product that's meant to be used and things that are meant to be used are going to be abused and going to be have wear and tear. It's just the way it is. Correct. correct. And it really depends on how you want to handle the customer. Um, but Sean brings up a good question. So you build a piece and you ship it off to Salt Lake City. Yeah. For some weird reason, it goes to Salt Lake City, but it goes to Salt Lake City. You know, a month in, the customer said, well, let's say it's a $10,000 piece. And the customer says, well, I was, I moved it out of the way to do some cleaning underneath it. And the leg broke off. What do you say? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Do you get on a plane and go to Salt Lake city or do you find somebody? I think, I think what I would try to do is I would try to find somebody in Salt Lake city to go look at it and maybe Mm -hmm. pay them to fix it for me. That's probably the best way to do it. Yep. Yeah. So I, I guess it, I guess it's one of those things where you just have to deal with it as it comes up. But as a manufacturer, but if you're if you are acting as a manufacturer and you're building, you know, stuff in a production capacity, you know, you got to give a warranty and you got to stick to it. It's tough sometimes. That's a really good question. We could we could stay on that for a long time, but yeah. but I think I think for the most part. We gave it uh, some pretty due diligence. So, uh, do you have anything else you want to add to that, Sean? No, I mean I don't have much right. experience with it. Um, I think you guys covered it. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we. You've got the. Oh, actually, Sean's got the next question. I do. Yep. Yeah. Wasn't that Hui's question? Yeah, it, it was mine. Yep. All right. Hey guys, question about stickering. How important is stickering throughout the later stages of the build process? I see some folks sticker even the smallest pieces of a build, which doesn't seem to make much sense. I guess I'm asking if and when you can just stack boards without concern with uneven evaporation. Thanks, Ben. Well, that's a good question, Ben. 
my opinion on the matter is if I'm milling the lumber to work with, I will do an initial flattening, let the board set overnight, and then take it down to the final thickness, and then I'm using it. I try not to let the board uh, lay around too long after the final milling. And if I'm cutting something like tenons on the end of aprons, I'll do the final flattening and then work on the boards and cut the joinery while the surfaces are flat uh, and square to one another. Now, what I what I do personally uh, with the aprons that are finished and they sit another three weeks, in other words, if I've cut the joinery on them, milled them, and they're good to go, and they set for three weeks while I finish the rest of the table because I, you know, I work nights and weekends um, out in the shop on a good week, uh, I typically don't sticker them. Um, this is just my opinion uh, because I found that for me and my shop, there's not much of a difference as far as uh, preventing the movement and, and whatnot if I'm going to let it sit for so long, which I quite often do with projects because I can't build a table in one day. Um, you know, if they're going to move after the final milling, you know, they're going to move the same if they're stickered again. That's just my opinion. Uh, my shop is climate controlled. So maybe there's that has something to do with it. There's not a swing in the temps or humidity. And, um, and I've experimented with stickering versus not stickering. And again, I get the same amount of slight movement. It's not, it's not a lot, but it's not dead flat and never going to move again. Um, I mean, do you just stack boards on top of each other and let them sit there? I mean, I don't like at the end of the day, stack them all up. I mean, I leave them where they're laying, but if I don't sticker them. Yeah. So well, he, have, says there, he says, it says, and when can you just stack boards without concern with uneven evaporation? So he's saying just stack them on top of one another. I would never do that. Yeah. I wouldn't stack boards just to be stacking them. I'm, I don't go out of my way. To if I have two boards laying on each other, I don't go out of my way to unstack them and sticker them. Yeah. I mean, I, I I do it in my shop, but I don't stack all of my boards at the end of the night. Definitely not. Yeah, I dig it. What do you do in in your shop if you're building something that takes several weeks? Do you at the end of the night go and re-sticker all of your all of your boards? No. I, no. no. I mean, we've talked about this before. There's sometimes where I'll if I resaw stuff. I do sticker it and I put it on my assembly table because I know after I resaw something, it's going to move pretty drastically. Yeah. So I'll put it on my assembly table, I'll sticker it, and I got 50 pounds of weights that I put on top of it. And that actually flattens stuff out and keeps it pretty flat. That's really the only time I sticker stuff. Mm -hmm. Other than that, if I'm building a project, I pick all my stuff out or I cut all my rough parts, but I don't mill it to its final thickness. Mm -hmm. And I, and when I store it, I store it on its edge standing up. Mm -hmm. Yep. I, like I said, we've talked about this before. We, we have, I totally agree with, with guy. I wouldn't stack them on top of each other, but generally speaking, I just put it on its side where the, the short edge is on the assembly table or the workbench material has a little bit of airflow in between it to, to sort of get uh, even evaporation. I mean, just one edge, not exposed to the air is not really going to make that big of a difference. Yeah. We talked about this before and that's kind of, I mean, I don't go out of my way to sticker. So that, yeah, I don't think sure there's much that we haven't covered on this podcast actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could say that about every question. Yeah. All right. Well, hope that helps Ben guy. You got the next one. All right, that was quick and easy. Um, here I go again, scrolling <laughs> through these questions, looking for my name. This is from Logan. 
And I'm going to kind of paraphrase because he's got two two paragraphs here and it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So Logan's asking about glue creep. What causes it and how do you avoid it? And he's saying uh, he used Type Bond 3 in his, his last project. He used Type Bond 3 and it's a 8 by 4 red oak table. And in one spot, it actually pushed the polyurethane finish up and caused the finish to chip. Background on the milling, I have a helical head grizzly joiner that I've joined all the boards with. Seams were perfect with zero gap whatsoever. I'm starting to think it's a type on three. I'm looking for advice. Earlier in it, he says, I have a few tabletops done the past few years for some clients that have got what I believe is glue creep. And this is where he gets into the, the genesis of what he's talking about, the glue creep. The areas of creep are on the seams and just mm-hmm. an inch or so long in spots. Not very noticeable if you aren't feeling for it, but it is annoying for me. Mm-hmm. I want to avoid creep in my future projects. Mm-hmm. So this is a very good question, Logan. And I think you're going to get a lot of different answers on it. This is my opinion on it. I don't know if this is. Wow. Who's that in the background? Is that you, Hui? No, it's my daughter. She's running around. Sorry. Well, I, I, I knew it was your daughter. I didn't think that was <laughs> you in the background. Um I've she's got a got high pitched voice. She's got a good set of lungs on her, dude. Yeah, tell me about it. I'm going to go ahead and mute while while you talk, okay? <laughs> no, that's okay. You don't have to mute it. I think it's funny. Anyways, so this is a, like I said, it's a good question, Logan. And this is something I've been a proponent of for a very long time. And I, every time I mention it to somebody, they kind of give me a weird look like I'm an idiot. If you take two boards and you're doing a glue joint on its long grain, and you're using a glue like a Type Bond 2 or Type Bond 3, that's a water-based glue. That wood fiber, those wood fibers get wet on that glue joint. And when the water goes away, the glue hardens. But with Type Bond 2, especially with a polyvinyl acetate glue, like PVA glue, like Type Bond 2 and Type Bond 3, they never get rigid, even with uh, type on one, which is, um, I, I can't think of the, what it's called, alphatic resin. With that, it still never gets a rigid glue line, and it's still always going to move a little bit. What people do, I see it all the time when they're gluing up panels. They say, well, I'm going to clamp it for 40 minutes or an hour and take it out of the clamps, and they start sanding it. It's like, wait a second, dude, there's still water in that joint especially for like a tabletop. And I know I've got multiple glue lines in there and I'm using like a type on two or type on three, which I typically use like a type on two or type on three. I leave it in the clamps for 24 hours. Number one, that way as the boards dry, there's no chance of them really moving past one another, either up or down. The other thing is if you pull that, those, those, that glue up out of the clamps, let's say an hour after being glued up, It's really not going to move that much initially, but as that water releases from where the joint is, it's going to cause the joint to become uneven. So if you pull that out of there, you you scrape the glue off, you sand it, and then two days later, you're wondering why there's a ridge there. That's why, because you sanded it too damn quick. Let it sit for a couple days before you do the sanding on it, before you flatten that top. 
Uh, what what do you guys think? No, completely agree with just seeing folks sand uh, sand down their tabletops right after taking it out of the clamps for an hour. That one of the things that I've seen too that I it just doesn't I I don't understand. And um, every time I see, it, I just want to scream. It's like, what are you doing? I I know I know. Or take a scraper to or whatever. You know, just removing it, removing wood with the glue. Right. I mean, because you swelled the joint, so now it's all popped up. It's like, oh, let me remove that wood. If you take it out of the clamp after forty minutes, that's fine. Yeah, don't care about that. Yeah, but you can't you can't flatten the top for at least a day or two. Absolutely. No, I I completely agree with you on that and see it a lot of times. Are we all in agreement that it's it's mostly moisture, it's mostly water that is the cause of of the creep? Is that correct? The kind of creep he's talking about, yes. Right. He also asked like what could he do to address it? So we talked about not uh, sanding or flattening the top mm-hmm. until at least a day or two. Uh, you might look into other types of glues. I mean, I'm not really a big fan of polyurethane glue. But there was a study that I saw where uh, the study was measuring the amount of creep based on different types of glues that were used. And polyurethane was one of the better ones. Now, I don't like using polyurethane glue primarily because it bubbles up and it's it just is it's really hard to clean up. But it did display the least amount of creep. So just something to consider. You might oh, epoxy is another one. Yeah. Have you, have you tried using the, the tight bond polyurethane glue? I have not. How is it, it doesn't bubble up like the Gorilla Glue does. It's not Ooh. as it still bubbles up, but not as drastic. aggressively. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's all I can. You know, maybe if you're really hard pressed on not using maybe a PVA glue, consider using an epoxy or polyurethane glue. Although you know the cleanup might be a little bit of a you know high a challenge as well. Or high glue. There, there you go. That's another one. So, how about you, Sean? You have any other thoughts on? what he could do to possibly alleviate the problem that he's having with the, with the glue line. No, I think you two uh, covered it pretty well. Just don't rush it. Let the glue dry completely before you work it and make it, you know, put any heat on the, on the top and let it fully dry. Have you ever had that happen to you before? Honestly, I have not, but I'm not a, you know, a full-time woodworker, but I've not had this happen. You know, I may glue a top up and it's set there for two days in clamps because I don't have much time in the shop (laughs) and I don't use type bond three. Not to say that that's the cause, but I mean, I personally have not had it happen, but it doesn't mean that, it, you know, it's not a common occurrence in woodworking. I've had it happen on particularly face frames is probably even the wor- a, a worst culprit, but I did the exact thing that you're not supposed to do, Guy, which you mentioned is, you know, I put glue on the end grain, which is fine and, you know, pocket hold it in. And then because I had the pocket holes in there, you know, I start cleaning up the glue joint and then I noticed that it was, it had swelled at that joint. So then I sanded it down and I come back the next day and it's like, it's a divot. And I was like, what the heck happened? It was flat the day before. Are you talking about the same thing we are when you say divot and glue creep? I'm envisioning a tabletop that's been glued together and right at the seam, the glue has popped up. No. Well, it kind of, so if you've got a, if you've got a tabletop that let's say, you take it out of the clamps and it's completely flat. That mm-hmm. seam is completely flat. In a day or two, you look at it and the seam on one side is higher than the other, mm-hmm. but only in certain spots. Okay. Because I'm taking what he says of, I use tight bond three and once again, I have glue creep in one spot. It actually, actually pushed the polyurethane finish up and caused the finish to chip. Yeah. So what's happening is, is that he took it out of the clamps flattened it and then within a day or so put finish on it Mm -hmm. when that glue wasn't completely dry 
Right. And you're saying so, the wood is moving, the glue is not squeezing out. Correct. So okay. the wood is actually slipping by one another in just certain spots where there was excess moisture. Mm. And it's it's leaving that area. So mm-hmm. one side goes down and the other side stays up and it'll pop it'll pop finish up. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I mean, I guess I understand what you're saying. I, I mean, but again, I've not experienced that. I've, I've seen it before where, you know, you've got boards that are perfectly flat. You take them out, they're perfectly flat. You know, an hour later, people are putting them through uh, a sander or mm. a planer or whatever to get them flat. And the next day they're putting finish on it. Yeah. That's all fine and well. However, those seams can pop. Telegraph through the finish, yeah. And telegraph through the finish. Yeah. Where just in certain spots, it may just be up like, you know, a, a couple thousandths of an inch. It's not really this big, it's not like a quarter inch where it's popped up. But if you rub your hand across it, you can feel it. Now there, where it was once flat, is now there's a bump. Okay. And it's not yeah. flat. Anymore. I see what you're saying. Yeah, and I see what you're saying, Sean. I'm talking about a divot. You're talking about it popping up. Yeah, I gotcha. I gotcha. Yep. Yeah, but I, I mean, I make maybe five tabletops a year, so I'm not like, I, I don't I don't batch out tabletops. I guess in the situation that I was talking about, the glue is actually, the moisture was actually absorbing into the wood, right? Mm-hmm. So, so maybe a little, uh, yeah, opposite of a situation, but similar in a sense. Yeah, one side's going to go up, one side's going to go down. And right. I've seen that with face frames too. Yeah, yeah, and that's or, what I was know, talking you, about. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you glue them up and you pocket hole them together and it's like, okay, they're they're not going to move. Well, they will, mm-hmm. especially with glue in them. Yep. They're going to move a little bit. So you flatten them, you run them through the drum sand, and the next day it's like, what the hell? Yeah. In my case, I used a random orbit, but yes, exa- exactly. Why, why aren't these flat anymore? Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. that's why. Mm-hmm. Because all the moisture hadn't left yet and you flattened it. Right. And it's not flat anymore. That's why I took the question. So anyways, who's got the next one? Is it we? Yep, it's me now. And this question is from Chad. And he asks, in episode 24, you talked about not using the dominoes fence for alignment, but instead using your flat work surface. This makes sense to me, except for when you're joining two pieces that aren't the same thickness. How would you go about addressing this? Uh, One thing that I've seen, and I've actually seen it in, uh, I think, Anise, Anisa mentioned it is using uh, shims on the Ooh. sole of Ooh. the domino. Anisa Capsal, she's does the fine woodworking podcast. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> and uh, she had mentioned uh, using in in one of her videos. It was just like a quick, like one or two minute video using shims on the bottom to offset the reveal on, like, say, an apron and and a leg. So that's maybe one way. Uh, Sean, do you have any ways of doing it? If 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 the fence is not a reliable alignment tool, what what do you do to offset? Well, I think I was the one that had that asked that question in episode twenty four. So <laughs> probably, um, I, I guess I don't understand what he what Chad means as far as the fence alignment. But instead, uh, or for thinner pieces, what does he does he mean? He wants them to be offset from the front but flush on the back. No, I think something like you say, I take it as like, say you're doing an end table and the apron is set in from the edge of the leg. Does that make sense? So like, let's say you have like a eighth inch reveal or quarter inch reveal from, from the leg in. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? 
No, it does. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I, I I think using shims, like if you wanted to inset a quarter inch, use quarter inch ply or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's a great idea. Yeah. I've, I've done that. I've done that many times, especially with the, with the biscuit joiner. The thing is though, you have to make, and I've used my, my table, my uh, table saw top quite a few times for that. You just have to make sure that that piece of wood is firmly to the surface right. of whatever you're using as a reference surface. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I took this from Chad was that, you know, if you're joining two pieces that aren't the same thickness, you just have to make sure that the reference face is in the same spot. It doesn't matter how, so if you got a half inch piece mm. and a, or let's say a three quarter inch piece and a seven eighths piece, and you're gluing them and you want them flat on that surface, you just have to make sure that the reference face is down on whatever. Yeah, that's how I took it. I wasn't sure. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, that's the way I'm taking it. So (laughs) it doesn't matter how thick the pieces are. Man, I'm... As long as you're always using the same reference face, it's the reference face. Well, there you go. You know what? Chad, you just got two answers in one, so... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I screwed that but up. I have done that before too, where, you know, because I only have a, a Domino DF500, mm-hmm. not 700. And I've used it to do like tables and stuff like that. And sometimes the, the fence doesn't move far enough to where I want it to go. So mm-hmm. I've taken the table leg, clamped it down to my work surface, and then put shims underneath my Domino to mm-hmm. raise it up mm-hmm. to where I need to put it. Instead of working down, I go mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is a fairly common thing to do, I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right, Sean, you've got the next question, man. All right. This is from Joshua. Hey, guys, this is Joshua from the Philippines. Love the show and the podcast. I appreciate the way you three tackle questions from different perspectives. My question is on wood movement. If you finish wood with a film finish, say a polyurethane, does that mean that there is less of a chance that the moisture from the environment could enter the piece and cause the wood to expand? Here in the Philippines, we just don't have that big of a swing in temperature and humidity throughout the years, so we don't really need to worry about that as much, but I'm just curious. And uh, that's a good question, Josh. And while wood finishes can slow the transfer of moisture from air to wood and back again, it's it's not going to stop it. And, um, and that all depends on what type of finish, a film finish versus just an oil, but nothing is going to stop it. Um, you know, even finishes like epoxy, can't stop the transfer and the wood movement, uh, it's still going to occur. So it's important to, in my opinion, start off with wood that's been acclimated to your environment and the material that's dry. That way you don't have to fight too much, but you're still always going to have to have that uh, allow for that that movement. And don't expect to, to mill the lumber that's not fully dried and, and the polyurethane is going to stop it from moving. It's going to move. So set yourself up for success as early as possible with lumber selection and then carry that mm-hmm. mindset forward while you're designing a project to allow for that wood movement and you should, uh, should be okay. But no, unfortunately nothing's going or, well, I'm not going to say nothing. Sure. There's something out there that would stop it, but, uh, definitely not a film finish. It'll slow it, but not stop it. And with that answer, uh, let's see, guy, do you have anything, any wisdom to pass on to Joshua in regards to slowing the wood movement with finishes? Putting a film finish like polyurethane or you said epoxy before, will it stop wood movement? No. Will it help mitigate it? Yes. More so than, let's say, an oil, like a Danish oil or something mm. like that. 
So yeah, it'll help, but it won't stop it. Nothing, as you put it, Sean, nothing will stop. If Woods wants to move, it's going to move. It's always going to be taking in moisture and always releasing moisture. Mm-hmm. Even in the most you know controlled environments, that's still going to happen. So I, I don't, I don't think that saying that putting polyurethane on it and putting you know, like five coats of a thick polyurethane is going to stop your piece from moving. So yeah, I think just like Sean said, is having good and best practices up in the be- from the beginning, uh, allowing wood to move when it's going to move before doing the joinery phase and during the milling phase is going to be the best practice to get it to move the way it needs to move. And then if you're in big climate swings, humidity swings, yeah, the polyurethane is not going to stop it. It's just it might slow it down. So uh, yeah, I think I think everything that said was was correct. So. Every year, what I, I like to do, if I remember, is I post on Instagram. I have a blanket chest that has breadboard ends, and every year, it'll move. You'll see it. I'll take a picture of it. It'll move, and then it'll move back in the in the spring and summer, and then shrink in the middle mm-hmm. of the winter. Nothing's yeah. going to stop yeah. it. Perfect example. And do you have poly, uh, like a wipe-on poly on that one? What do you have on that? Man, it's been so either a wipe-on poly or a brushed-on shellac. I believe it's a wipe-on poly. Okay. Yeah. So there, there's a great example of. Yeah, but you didn't put like a thick film finish on it, did you? No, I probably wiped on four coats. Maybe it, it's been it's probably been four years. Yeah. Well, I hope that helps, Josh. Uh, Guy, do you have your next question ready? It's the last question. Yes, I do. I actually have it ready to go. And this is from Glenn Knife, which is our Neef Knife, which is our new patron. This is kind of a weird question. I don't know how what kind of experience you guys have had with this, but I've had a lot of experience. Table saw versus radial arm saw. Ooh. Saying, mm. really enjoying your podcast. I'm new to podcasts, and it's a new avenue of learning for me. I've shied away from instructions, not on purpose, just too busy doing it, I guess. That's a, that, that, that's a lot. You and a lot of other people, Glenn. I've had the same Sears 12-inch radial arm saw since 1970 is on his fourth motor. I make boxes and toys in my small under the garage shop where the random random radial arm saw is my main tool. On one side of my shop, I have the the RAS on the rear of a 3.5 by 7.5 foot table. In the middle of my shop, I have a rolling table of the same height and I can process four by eight sheets with the setup. And he gives a link to his uh, website, treetobox.com. And I took a look at the pictures. And uh, he's saying, all my projects are small to large, business card boxes to rifle cases. And he says, I'm interested in your views of radial arm saw versus table saws. Have you guys ever used a radial arm saw before in your shop? Nope. I have not. not in my shop, but in the community shop that I was going to when I was first learning how to woodwork. Yes. Up until from, I'm going to say from 1990 up until 2012, I had a radial arm saw in my shop and I loved it. It was awesome. I wish I had room in my shop for a radial arm saw. I was just about to ask that. Did you get rid of it because it was it took it, up? It, it yeah. takes up way too much room. Mm-hmm. It took mm-hmm. up way too much room. And I went to a, a, a compound 
a sliding compound miter saw instead. I think you got a Makita, right? You got a Makita after that, yeah, right? I, got a Makita. I really wish I would have kept my radial arm saw. It's an incredibly versatile, versatile tool. It's an incredibly dangerous tool. Yeah. The way the blade spins. The blade mm-hmm. spins towards you. So it yep. has a tendency to walk. What Glenn's doing, and I, t- as I took a look at his pictures, he doesn't have a table saw. Yeah. He's breaking down lumber and stuff, and he's using his uh, radial arm saw to actually rip his lumber and do everything else. I've seen that before. It's interesting. Which can't be done. Yeah. And one time, the the radial arm saw was considered the the centerpiece of a shop, not necessarily the table saw. That's changed quite a bit over the years. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I love I loved having a radial arm saw. I know a, a couple guys that still use them quite extensively. One one guy's here in town, uh, Tab Adams at Crosscut Vintage Designs. He's got one that's set up, and he's got you know you can do a twenty four inch crosscut on the thing, mm-hmm. and it's deadly accurate. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he's got another one too that he's rebuilding. Anyways, myself, if I had the room, Glenn. I would still have a radial arm saw, not necessarily for the way you use it for the ripping and things like that, but just for cross cutting, uh, putting dados and panels. You put a dado blade on it, really great tool to use for that. I say, you know, keep it. If you've got room for one, it's a, there's still a company that makes them too. I think it's like the original saw company or something like that. I can't remember the name of it, but they still make the, uh, big DeWalt style radial arm saws. There's a ton of that stuff on eBay and Craigslist too. Yeah. yeah. You can find one pretty inexpensively. I always thought a radial arm saw was the standard for a shop primarily because when I was first started watching woodworking videos, it was uh, the Norm Abrams videos and he he always used a radial arm saw. And I thought it was pretty standard to use a radial arm saw with a dado blade. Because he he did the same thing, uh, and and when I went to started using the community shop that I went to when I was first learning how to woodwork, that's exactly what they had. They had they had two radial arm saws. They had a sixteen inch and they had a twelve inch. Man, that sixteen inch was a monster. Uh, had like a twenty four inch cut capacity as well, cross cut capacity. But that was a very accurate saw. But all it did was cross cuts, and all it did was nineties. They never there was actually a sign. It's like this saw only makes 90 degree cuts. Do not touch it. Do not adjust it because supposedly I guess the one they had was just a really pain in the neck to readjust back and get back to dead square. For some reason, I think the detents weren't very good on it. I I remember, I remember a time where cross cut sled, what's a cross cut sled. Mm. Mm. I mean, nobody used them. Mm hmm. There was no such thing as a crosscut sled. I'm, I'm deadly serious. Mm. That's the thing that started in like maybe 2007, 2008. Yeah. Yeah. There was no, I mean, everything was, everything was crosscut with a radial arm saw. Yeah. That was a big, that was a, that was a very used, well-used tool in shops. Yeah. I, I've used them. I know how to use them and they're very versatile. I, I thought about getting one before I got a miter saw because I was like, oh, well, why do I need a miter saw? Get them radial arm saw and I be a lot more versatile, but, uh, ultimately the space is what really was the kicker for me. They're, they do take up a lot of space. Sean, have you ever used a radial arm saw? Uh, I have not actually. And when I started woodworking, 
they were already kind of phased out. So I just got a uh, sliding compound miter saw and obviously never bought one because they weren't really around and um, didn't know much about them to buy a used one on Craigslist. So I just got a uh, sliding compound miter and then built a crosscut sled and never looked back. Yeah, I almost bought one. I almost bought one of those uh, old DeWalt's. I ended up not get buying it because the person buying on Craigslist, the person I was buying it on Craigslist from, uh, I asked him to turn it on and to get it to, to run, and it wouldn't run. The motor had burnt out. I said, well, I'm not buying this one. <laughs> so yeah. I almost bought one. But What do you think about uh, a lot of the information about them being dangerous and that probably cause a lot of people See, to do with to, the radial arm saw. Okay. So just like a, a miter saw, the blade spins towards you. Like mm-hmm. on a miter saw, you pull the blade out and you push it back. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Yep. On the radial arm saw for some reason, the blade's spinning the same way, but you pull it towards you. Right. Right. And that can actually get away from you really easy. Mm-hmm. So it's and walking it, towards you. Yeah. It's, it's com- walking towards you while the blade's spinning towards you. Mm-hmm. So as you pull that handle forward, it's wants to move forward. So you kind of have to be prepared Shut into it. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yep. You kind of have to be prepared for that thing to like shoot forward. A lot of people use it for ripping too, which is spin it sideways and then you use mm-hmm. its fence and you push the boards through. Yep. It's, it, it, it's a it's a big spinning blade, and most of the blade is exposed during it. It's it's kind of a dangerous tool. Mm-hmm. It just is. It's the nature of the beast. But like anything else, you know, the table saw is a dangerous tool. Also, right. I just don't plan on sticking my hand in it. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with the radial arm saw. I don't plan on sticking my hand in it. Right. They're, they're all, they're all dangerous. They can all cut your finger off. Yeah. 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 I mean, I had a molding head cutter. I kept a a dado stack in mine all the time. And that's what I used to cut dados with and rabbits with. I always just used a radial arm saw. It was already set up. All I had to do was, you know, raise and lower it and it cut straight 90 and I was pretty happy with it. Yeah. That's nice to have something like that always in your. Yeah. And as far as like, like rough cutting lumber, you didn't have to worry about it like you did a, a miter saw. Right, right, right. So right. you don't get the same kickback pinching uh-uh. issues. Yeah. Yeah, it'll just like spin towards you at ninety miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, I think I think uh the 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 sliding compound miter saws killed radial arm saws. Mm-hmm. But they just don't uh, sliding compound miter saw just does not have the cross cuts capacity. Right, versatility. If you've got the room for one of these things in your shop, you know, myself, if I ever had like a big shop, it'd be one of the first things I'd get. Would be a radial arm saw. He's got a pretty neat setup. Very clean. Yeah, it is. You know, a few tools. It's nice. I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't say that I would love to try one one day. But you know, I don't. There's not too many of those around. I'd have no. to buy a used one just to try and then get rid of it because I wouldn't have the room for it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're, they're cheap. Yeah. Yeah. I think I sold mine for like 200 bucks. I mean, I gave it away. Anyways. So I guess that was the end of it. What's going on in the shop, Sean? Well, I just uh, finished making a raised panel door because why wouldn't you? <laughs> Had a walnut. Came out beautifully. I love walnut. Um, 
And so now I'm getting back on finishing, finally, the Cherry Hall table that I started several weeks ago. Hope to have that, at least a coat of finish on it this this weekend. I, I imagine I can do that after a consulting guy on uh, what size uh, domino cutter I needed for half-inch stock, which I got in. Um, okay. Yeah, that sucker was expensive for how mm. small it is and what it is, but it's just the name of the game. Anything Festool is expensive. So now mm. I'm going to put the drawers together and get that built and hopefully put mm. some finish on it and then uh, figure out what I'm going to build next with uh, with the stock that I have on hand because obviously I don't, I don't think I'm going to be able to get too much more uh, of uh, stock right now with what's going on. Um, so I may, um, it's just going to take some, uh, some thinking cause I don't want to make everything out of cherry. So that's, that's what I have going on in the shop. Although there's nothing wrong with making everything out of cherry. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what about you? Hui? What do you've got going on in the shop? Well, I just finished uh, putting the edging, the solid wood edging on some birch plywood that I've got for a tomber, small tomber cabinet that I'm, working on uh and then i need to uh this, what? what kind of cabinet uh tambour door cabinet tambour 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 sorry i said tambour okay. anyway yeah. um tomato tomato uh and uh the Tambor, next thing <laughs> the next thing i have to do Tambor, is Tambor. the next thing i have to do is flush up the solid wood edging uh, to the plywood because I'll be uh, veneering over top of it and then doing like a sort of fingernail edge on uh, all the exposed edges. So uh, pretty simple stuff, not too not too complicated. Uh, how about you, Guy? You got that uh, kitchen island, right? I've actually done a video on making a timbre door. Yes, I know. So <laughs> I know. You should, you should watch that and, and, and learn something. Uh, anyways, <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, I've got Kitchen Island. I've got to finish pretty much done today. I've got yeah. to put the electrical in. We've got to, for some reason, they, I told them I, I want to top this big and they say they can't order it. Well, why can't you order it? Well, the, it has to be in place. What? Yeah. It's got to be in place. And we've got to get it from the same place because we want it to match our kitchen countertops. So you're talking like granite, right? No, quartz. Quartz, okay. So it's got to be in place for them to measure it. I'm like, well, there's nothing around it. It's an island. It's got to be this big by this big. No, we can't do it. We have to come out and measure, and the piece has to be in place. Oh, All okay. Right, whatever. But I've got to put the electrical stuff in it yet. I've got to put the supports in it for the granite top. None of that's going to be on video because mm -hmm. I don't want to do – any electrical stuff on my channel, mm -hmm. but the piece is basically done. So I'm happy about that. Just, I know that you're not going to do the video on it, but I'm just curious. Uh, is there an electrical cord that's going to be coming from the ground to. Yeah. There's Romex coming through one of the legs. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Okay. So okay. there's asked, there's three outlets that are going into the piece. There's one that's going to be external. Mm -hmm. There's one that's going to be behind one of the drawers and top because we want to put uh, electronic chargers and stuff in there. Gotcha. Yep. And then there's another outlet that has to go to the opening, which is uh, where the microwave is going to sit. Mm. So there's going to be three outlets in it all together. But again, I don't want to show doing electrical work on my YouTube channel because people, oh, what about that? Yeah, they get enough crap. Yeah. <laughs> for woodworking for woodworking <laughs> <laughs> i know that's the truth i hear you man i hear you 
Let me ask you about the um, island. What did you do for, what did you use for the stain? What color and all that That's jazz? a dye. Uh, it's not a stain. So the particles are much, much smaller. And I used transient dye. Mm. And it's, I used uh, denatured alcohol and I put one drop in a pint of denatured alcohol. What color did you go with? It's dark walnut. It's white oak. Is that, it's white yep. oak, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The floor that we got is like a darker brown and we didn't want walnut in there because it would just mix into the, the floor. Yeah. So that's why I went with white oak and I just, my wife doesn't like light colored stuff. Mm-hmm. So I had to get it somewhere in between. That's why I went with white oak and I knew I would have to put some dye on it. Mm-hmm. And that uh, trans tint with alcohol, I mean, it just spreads like really super evenly and dries really fast and raises the grain, but not as much as with water. So it it came out really, really well. I'm pretty happy with it. Nice. Well, I think that's going to do it for the show. And we'd also like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate your support and feedback. Please remember, as always, that this podcast is here to answer questions from you, the woodworking community. So if you, the woodworking community, have woodworking questions you would like answered, you can send them to the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com, DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife, and you can reach me at guyswoodshop.com. Where can you be found at we? You can find me at alabamawoodworker.com. And Sean, how about you? Uh, Simplecove.com. Simplecove at Instagram, YouTube, all the places. All the places. Awesome. All right. Very good. We'll see you guys later and stay safe. Stay safe. Take care. Bye. You too. See you.